The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's, uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, starting at verse one. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each wife is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession and not command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Well, we come to uh, really what is the second part of the letter, the first Corinthians uh, chapters one through six form a unit. We get to chapter seven and Paul begins taking up um, issues Uh, We'll see, are these questions, are they assertions that the Corinthians made? But he starts taking up issues that um, have been brought uh, to his attention. Now, if you notice uh, in the the verse 1, it says, now concerning, uh, that little expression, now concerning the Greek text, actually marks um, Paul's response to the Corinthians. And some, some commentators think that that the Corinthians sent a letter to Paul and asked a series of questions. And we know for sure that they sent a letter because he says, now concerning the things which you wrote. But whether or not Paul is answering direct questions uh, is a little hard to tell. Um, One commentator, Gordon Fee, love Gordon Fee's wonderful commentator, he actually sees the uh, relationship between Paul and the Corinthians as, as a somewhat uh, adversarial. And so he doesn't see the Corinthians necessarily asking questions of Paul, but sees Paul responding to assertions that they would have made in their letter. Um, he says at one point, uh, it is possible that in the Corinthian Correspondence to Paul, they express sort of a, well, why can't we attitude? And uh, Paul is actually picking up those uh, issues. Uh, there's really no way for us to know for sure whether Paul's asking, answering sincere questions by the Corinthians uh, or whether he is dealing with issues that the Corinthians just brought up. Um, it's really not conclusive. In fact, if you look at verse 1, now concerning... Uh, the things about which you wrote. Notice he doesn't say explicitly about which you asked. He just says about which you wrote. And so there's no way to tell. But whatever the case, this section, 7, 1 and following, is prompted either by direct questions or assertions made by the, by the Corinthians in their letter. And it is actually this little expression now concerning that tips us off. 
So we get to, uh, we get to chapter 7, and chapter 7 falls into three sections. And I want to say that there's a direct connection between Paul's admonition in 6, 12 to 20 on not going to prostitutes and his teaching on marriage. Uh, in fact, it is, uh, the, the, the chapter itself is, of course, precipitated by their letter, but Paul's going to deal with actually a number of different situations within the Corinthian church. I would actually divide this up. It, it, it really divides nicely. You have 7, 1 to 16. That forms the first unit. Then you have this center section, 17 to 24. And Paul, it, it, I, I would argue that that is actually the, um, the basic governing principle for the whole chapter. In that paragraph, Paul's going to make an argument that he's actually made to some degree throughout the whole thing, which is basically this. Whatever state you're in, remain in that state. Don't seek to try to change things. That actually is going to make a lot of sense if we think about the Corinthian context. And then finally, the final section is 725 through 40. So uh, the central theme of each of these sections, as I just noted, is don't seek a change in status. You see this alluded to in verse 2, verse 8, verse 2, verse 10, verse 11, 12 to 16, 26, 27, 37, 40. And, um, and so we could say it like this. So 1 to 7, Paul addresses the married. And his, his counsel, <laughs> remain fully married. I'll explain that in a minute. Eight and nine is addressed to the unmarried, or what we're going to call the de-married. Those who were married at one time and now are no longer. Um, And Paul's advice to them is going to be, it's good to remain unmarried. Ten and eleven is going to be to the married who are married to unbelievers, and his advice there will be, remain married. Twelve to sixteen, to those with an unbelieving spouse... Remain married. I'm starting to get the, the uh, drift here, right? 25 to 38, to virgins, it's good to remain unmarried. Now, Paul's going to make exceptions to all of these. Okay? And if you marry, it's not a sin, he's going to tell them. Or um, if the un- unbeliever leaves, let him leave, so forth. There's going to be exceptions to all these things. But this is pa- the gist of this chapter. Then the, finally, uh, 39 and 40, uh, to married women and widows, the married are bound to the marriage, and when widowed, it's good for them to remain that way. All right? So, we get to chapter 7, 1 to 7 tonight, and I want to say just a few things about this by way of introduction. First of all, this passage has been uh, amazingly misunderstood for certain reasons, all right? Um, Many times, uh, especially in earlier church history, this section has been seen as Paul telling people why they should get married. And I want to say that that actually is not what Paul's talking about at all, and it profoundly misses the point. Paul's not talking about why get married. But let me just give you a few samples of this kind of understanding of the text. So Calvin... Okay, we love Calvin, right? And um, uh, Calvin in Institutes, book two, says, the companionship of marriage has been ordained as a, as a necessary remedy to keep us from plunging into unbridled lust. How romantic. 
<laughs> uh, middle 20th century Dutch commentator Groscheid says, in verse 2, Paul is teaching, get a wife to prevent fornication. Okay? I want to just say again, this is absolutely not what Paul is talking about. All right? Groscheid. G-R-O-E-S-H-E-I-D-E. Godet, French commentator, G-O-D-E-T, says, Paul proclaims aloud, listen to this, that the state of celibacy in a man is absolutely becoming unworthy and has nothing in it contrary to the moral ideal. Celibacy is therefore holier than married life. You're going to kind of see how, the, how this passage has been interpreted. Um, one commentator who doesn't go this direction, David Garland, says, Paul does not devalue marriage only as a venereal safety valve for incontinent, non-charismatic people, providing them a law, lawful outlet for expressing their sexual urges. I, I have to read that to you again because you should hear it. Paul does not devalue marriage only as a venereal safety valve for incontinent, non-charismatic people, that is people that don't have enough of the spirit to control themselves, providing them a lawful outlet for expressing their sexual urges. So here's the thing. As we come to this passage, we have to realize that, that everybody comes to the Bible in the context of their own time, right? There's, there's no way that you can come to the Bible apart from being a 21st century American. Okay? Impossible, okay? Um, But as we come to the Bible, we have to realize the context from which we're coming. We have to understand the uh, cultural influences that impact the way that we may see the scriptures. So, for instance, this passage has seen a huge pendulum swing. So for centuries, literally for centuries, um, there was the idea that the single celibate life was the celebrated life. In fact, it was the life that was truly holy, and marriage was, in fact, just second best. I mean, some of the early church fathers actually taught that that, um, sexual relations did not exist in creation before the fall. And in fact, the way that sin is propagated through the human race is through intercourse. This was common view. Jerome, great comment from Jerome. You have to think about this. The the highest purpose of marriage is to create virgins. You think about it. In other words, the only benefit of marriage is actually making babies who are virgins and hopefully stay that way. So the idea of virginity, virginity, celibacy, a life of singleness, this was seen to be the highest, the highest. And um, uh, Augustine and, and, and others actually say some really terrible things about marriage as a um, you know, second best option for people that can't be celibate. Well, now... So that's one end of, this, of the pendulum. You know, you, you understand we're not there now. Right? Okay. Hang on a second. We are so far from that now, we've swung all the way over to the other side to where now the idea is, is that 
marriage is holier than singleness, and um, singleness is second best if you can't get married. And we have this um, elevated view of marriage in such a way that we end up diminishing what the Bible actually says about a celibate life. So, so depending on where you are on this pendulum, um, it, it kind of influences the way that you see the text. And our, our responsibility is to come to the passage and try to understand Paul in his own context as best as we possibly can. Understanding Paul on his own terms as best as we possibly can. Don asked about the reformers, asked about Luther. You have to understand that what happens at the Reformation is that uh, the Reformation happens, uh, actually the Reformation somewhat ends the medieval period, right? And there is a wonderful recovery of the blessedness of marriage. Okay? This is why all of your reformers had a previous occupation. What was it? They were priests. Okay? Going back to Gregory the Great, the priesthood was not allowed to marry. Life of celibacy. Luther, Tyndale, all these guys, what do they do? They get married. They start to argue for the beauty of marriage, right? Luther actually says, it's absolutely wonderful to wake up next to pigtails. So, um, there was a a wonderful sense of recovery of the the calling of marriage, all right? But we have to understand where where we're at culturally, uh, on, on the pendulum, right? Because, again, in, in our, especially our circles, um, we really do look somewhat on people that are unmarried as somewhat second class. And I want to say that Paul actually doesn't fall into either of those extremes, okay? All right. So, we begin with verse 1, now concerning the things which you wrote. That little expression, now concerning, Paul's going to use here in verse 1, verse 25, 8, 1, 12, 1, 16, 1, and 16, 12. All of them indicate either a question or an assertion that the Corinthians had made. Now, we don't know for sure what the exact historical background is to these questions or assertions, Right? Uh, but we have to make, um, at least cautiously make, an attempt to try to understand what the background was that would lead the Corinthians to say, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right? Now, that little expression, if you have um, ESV, anybody using the ESV? You... Confess, no. Did you bring your Bibles? Okay, yeah, all right. So, yeah, okay. Adam, yeah, Arnie's throwing his NAS on the floor. Yeah. (laughs) Is that an ESV? No. Okay. I don't, yeah, don't take your phone out. I'll just die. Okay. No, don't, don't look at anything other than just the text. If you have the ESV, you know what you see with this expression? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. No, 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 no. You're missing the point. What do you see in in the ESV? No, 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 no. Just wished. 
the quote, the quotation marks, all right? Now, the, the, the literal rendering is it's good for a man not to touch a woman. ESV, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But in the ESV, rightfully so, they put quote marks around that expression. Why? Because it's indicating that this is something that the Corinthians were saying. And again, it, perhaps it could be something they were asking about, or maybe it was just something that they were asserting. My, my take is actually it was probably something that they were just simply asserting that it was good for a man not to touch a woman. That is actually the um, literal rendering. That's the way the New American Standard does it. Unfortunately, the NAS doesn't put the quote marks around that phrase in 7.1, and, and it should. It helps clarify some things. Now, this particular expression, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. We'll just stick with the literal rendering for now. Th- this, is, uh, this, this statement is actually crucial to understand what Paul's doing for the rest of the chapter. Okay? In fact, I would, I would say that because this expression reflects a Corinthian attitude, the way that Paul goes through the rest of this chapter and deals with the married, the unmarried, the demarried, virgins, etc., all goes back to this slogan of the Corinthians. Now, Some have actually understood this phrase, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, to be a reference to marriage. In fact, the old NIV and the British edition of the NIV translate it like this, it's good for a man not to marry. Now... um, Unfortunately, oftentimes that view is, is, is attributed to Paul. So Paul, so they have Paul saying something like, it's good for people not to get married. Okay. I want to just say that that, uh, that idea, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, means, i.e., don't get married, then affects the way we understand verse 2, which we also then see as, referring to marriage, okay? So um, each, uh, each man is to have his own wife, then is seen to be each man is to take a wife, all right? Now, let me just say that that understanding of the slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, and verse 2 as referring to uh, marriage is, is incorrect, in fact, I want to say it is emphatically incorrect. When Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, that expression is used repeatedly in biblical and non-biblical Greek literature and always means sexual relations. Okay. Never means marriage means sexual relations. Now, how do we understand this then as a Corinthian slogan? And here's, here's my, here's my um, suggestion. The Corinthians had bought into this idea of, of asceticism in marriage. That is, the idea of having sexually abstinent marriages, 
and that sexually abstinent marriages were better, more profitable, more spiritual, more holy. Okay. Now, I'm going to argue in a few minutes as to why they probably thought that, but you have to understand, too, that this idea was argued by Augustine and Jerome and Chrysostom, and that is if you have to get married, at least don't have sex. Now, I love the church fathers, but they weren't always right, right? Paul then says, verse 2, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, let me just, let me say that Paul is not saying the reason people should get married is because of immorality. That is not what he's saying. There may be an element of truth to that, but that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is going to argue here is why there should not be sexual abstinence in marriage. That's what he's arguing. Okay? And so, why should there... In other words, if the Corinthians are saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, Paul turns around and he says, um, hey, because of the immoralities, he uses the article, the immoralities... Each person should have his own husband, his own wife. So when, when Paul says the immoralities, what is he talking about? Well, he's not just talking about immorality in general. He's talking about the immoralities that he just got done talking about in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. So Garland again says, trying to be celibate in a marriage relationship is a recipe for sexual misadventures that may ultimately exclude them from the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, all right, this, this, is your, this is your slogan. This is your, um, um, what it means to be spiritual. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But I'm going to tell you that because of the stuff that we just talked about, because of the sexual immorality, then he turns around and he says, each husband must have his own wife, etc. Now, I want to make a, um, um, let's, we'll call this a modest proposal for Reconstruction, historical reconstruction, okay? The Corinthians, of course, suffered from a super spiritualized view of the Christian life, right? We've already seen that a number of times in 1 Corinthians. Super spiritualized view of the Christian life. And so they thought it was their wisdom, their knowledge, their spirituality, right? Their gifts of the Spirit that put them on a totally different plane than everybody else, And in some ways, put them in a totally different age than everybody else. It's um, it's very probable that they they took Paul's teachings on the already and the not yet and um, overemphasized and twisted them so that they were so much part of the not yet. In other words, they were so much a part of the new age. They so much belonged to the new age that they virtually were like angels. Think about this for a second. See if this connects any dots for you. We are so spiritual. We have so much of the spirit. We are so gifted. We are so much a part of the age to come 
that we're like angels. Angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And by the way, could this, could this not be a possible reason why Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13.1 the tongues of angels? Maybe they thought that they were so spiritual and so angelic-like that not only could they speak with the tongues of angels, but they didn't have to have sex either. And so, we're like the angels now, and our marriages are heavenly, spiritual marriages, which means there's no need for sex. Now, I don't know how many men were in favor of this theology. But there was, a, there was an escape route. Think back to chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Okay. Stomach is for food. Food is for the stomach, right? By way of implication, body is for sex. Sex is for the body, right? So, marriage is on a totally different level, and we are like uh, the super spiritualized angelic marriage type, and we don't have sex in our marriage, but since the body is nothing... A sexless marriage didn't mean a sexless life, in other words. They could have very well gone to temple prostitutes while maintaining this idea of some sort of heavenly, super-spiritualized marriage. It's an interesting idea where where you have, in a sense, both uh, asceticism and licentiousness kind of brought together by the way, that, that always happens. People that are, people that practice asceticism, that is uh, denial of the normal appetites of the body, normally have other areas where they're incredibly weak in. And so you could imagine this theology taking root. David Garland again says, for them to attempt precipitously to suppress awakened sexual desires will only expose them to a sexual undertow that will tug them into a sea of temptation where they will ultimately drown. And so Paul says, listen, because of the kind of stuff that you guys Uh, have experienced and the various temptations and weaknesses that you have, then the second part of verse 2, each husband must have his own wife. Now, notice this, the, the structure here. Each man or each husband must have his own wife, and each woman or each wife must have her own husband. The word have is not a reference to getting married. Because to have a wife is not the same as to take a wife. In fact, to have your own wife or to have your own husband implies sexual relations within marriage. Nine times this expression, to have a husband or to have a wife, is used in the New Testament. And every time it refers to sexual relations or a sexual relationship within marriage or um, 
Paul uses this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says it's actually reported among you that a man has his father's wife. Didn't mean he married her. It It meant he had her sexually. So what Paul is arguing here is that each spouse, so because of immoralities, each spouse is to have a full conjugal married life. Please tell me I don't need to go into any further detail on what I'm talking about here. Let me just, so you understand when Paul says each husband is to have his own wife and each wife is to have her own husband, what Paul is saying is, is that each spouse is to be fully conjugally engaged with their spouse, husband with his wife, wife with her husband. Okay. You got it? So it is also an imperative which means Paul is commanding this. Now, what's interesting is the way that Paul says it, is is that each husband must have his own wife, and each wife must have her own husband. And there's there's a sense of mutuality here, isn't there? I was telling the the Tuesday Greek class a month or so ago, whenever it was, as we were looking at this passage, the way that Paul structures this, the way that Paul frames his argument, is absolutely revolutionary in his world. What would have been common in both a Jewish culture and even a Roman culture would have been simply to say this, each husband should should sexually have his own wife. Period. End of story. But that's not what Paul says. Paul goes on and he says, and each wife her own husband. In other words, he's recognizing that there are mutual needs within the marriage relationship and that those mutual needs should be mutually met by one another. Absolutely revolutionary to include the women. Verse 3 The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. I don't know, for some years and years ago, I I had convinced myself that I never have any reason to ever preach on this verse. And yet here we are. It's not a verse you'd pick, right? Let's see, what are we going to talk about Sunday? Oh, 1 Corinthians 7.3, there's a good one. Notice again the structure, verse 3. Husband to wife, likewise wife to husband. Now notice what it says here. Must give what is due. (laughs) Warms the cockles of your heart, doesn't it? Right? So Paul uses two words, apodidomi, which means to give, to give up yield, to pay what is owed, and aphelain, a duty or an obligation. So you have to understand a few things about what Paul's saying here. First of all, you know what the Puritans called this? The Puritans called this due benevolence. Are you tracking with me here? Due benevolence? Um, Actually, I think that's a great way to put it. Paul's actually focusing on the fact that there's an obligation to meet each other's needs. Again, including the women. 
men and women both. Now, let me just say that uh, this sounds uh, cold and contractual, doesn't it? Make sure you pay your obligations. Right? I mean, you know, after a candlelight dinner and some romantic music, um, there's no, enough out of you, quiet. Um, the idea of, um, all right, <laughs> um, it's tax time. By the way, this is the same language that's used for paying taxes. Pay what is owed. Now, what we have to say is that this is not the sum of Paul's view of sex and marriage. All right? It's actually a direct answer to those who see abstinence in marriage as a higher good. It's actually Paul's comment in the context of a spouse depriving the other spouse or even mutually depriving one another. And so in that context, Paul can talk about the uh, the mutual obligation, the due benevolence when there is deprivation going on. Gordon Fee puts it well. He says, although not primarily a duty, there are times when the duty aspect needs to be heard for the sake of the marriage. Verse 4, I can promise you, you're not nearly as uncomfortable as I am. Verse 4, he gives the reason why there's this due benevolence, this mutual obligation. Because the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so here again, you see this, this structure, and Paul begins with the wife. The wife doesn't have authority. Um, the, the verb there is uh, mastery. It's actually the same verb that's used in 6.12. I won't be mastered by anything. The wife does not have authority or mastery over her own body, but the husband does. And then Paul turns around and says something again that's absolutely culturally revolutionary and that was this and the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but the wife does in both a Jewish and a Roman culture the second part of that would have been absolutely stunning because the idea was is that sex was the privilege of the husband it was the duty of the wife And yet Paul turns around and he says, husband, you don't, you don't have authority over your body either. Just as sure as her body belongs to you, your body belongs to her. And so each spouse's body does not belong to them, it belongs to the other. Therefore, each spouse does not have the right to do with their own body as they please. By the way, the implication is, because your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your spouse, you do not have the right to unilaterally withhold yourself from your spouse. Paul's view is radically countercultural. And what he does is he, he presents for us the marriage bed as, as, as a unifying dynamic within marriage. 
There's a, there's a mutuality. This is, this is not just about men. This is about men and women, husbands and wives. There are mutual needs and there should be a sense of mutually meeting one another's needs. And then Paul says in verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's this direct command in, in the first part of verse 5. And the context here does, New American Standard says, stop depriving one another. The idea of stop doing this because you are doing it seems to be consistent with the context. But here's the interesting thing. The very word deprive, Paul's already used back in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. It is stop defrauding one another. If you remember, when we looked at 6, 7, and 8... Paul's talking about defrauding each other, taking each other to court and so forth. And the idea of defrauding is taking what belongs to somebody else as your your own. And in this case, what Paul sees is that when there is a sexually abstinent marriage, what's happening is that one spouse is actually defrauding the other spouse because they're keeping for themselves that which does not belong to them. Hence, they're defrauding the other That paints a different picture, doesn't it? Now, Paul, in the second part of verse 5, lays out what is a possible exception. And I want to be careful about this because if you, if you see the way Paul does this, except by, uh, probably better would be translated something like this, unless perhaps, okay, Now, the reason that that's better is because that conveys that this is a hypothetical concession to the prohibition. In other words, stop defrauding one another unless perhaps for this reason. Okay? So what is the condition of the possible exception to stop defrauding each other? By the way, it's not an exception to stop defrauding each other. It would be an exception to um, um, fully conjugally engaged marriage. Okay? Paul says, here are the conditions. If you are going to abstain, okay, these are the conditions. First, by mutual agreement. In other words, what Paul's saying is, if, if there is going to be any sexual abstinence within the marriage, then what you have to understand is that that abstinence must come by way of mutual agreement. In other words, both husband and wife must mutually agree. By the way, this is absolutely contrary to Jewish custom. Jewish custom actually allowed a, a, a Jewish husband to inform his wife that for a period of time, for the study of Torah and for a, a, a prayer, that uh, he would no longer be having relations with her. And it was just a unilateral decision on the husband's part. 
Paul actually turns that on its head and he says, there's no, there's no unilateral decisions for abstinence here. In fact, the, the, the only way that abstinence should ever take place is, is if there is mutual agreement. Both husband and wife fully agree. And then he says this, for a time. In other words, this is not to be the policy of your marriage. There's nothing normal about a sexless marriage. In fact, that is an incredibly dysfunctional and even sinful marriage. And I'm not talking about people that, that, that are physically handicapped and, and are sexually incapable. I'm talking about two people that are normally functional. And so Paul says, for a time, by way of mutual agreement, in order to be devoted to prayer. Now, Paul does not mean to imply that a normal, healthy sex life within marriage is an impediment to prayer. In fact, um, if husbands aren't living with their wives in an understanding way, if there's not good harmony within a marriage, what happens to the husband's prayers? 1 Peter 3. Prayers are hindered. Right? Prayers are hindered. Okay? Um, when there is good harmony and understanding and love within marriage, then the idea is your prayers aren't hindered. Okay? So Paul doesn't see the idea of, of normal relations within marriage as somehow bad for prayer. But what he is saying is there are going to be times where you're going to want to uh, get away for the purpose of focusing on prayer in an uninterrupted way. And if that's the case, then abstinence is okay as long as it's only for a time and by mutual agreement. And then he says this, but make sure you come together again. In other words, once the, once the, a designated time is over, make sure that you resume normal relations within the marriage. And Paul turns around and he says exactly why. In order that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And notice, does, he doesn't just say for men, it's, it's for both husband and wife. Well, think about that for a second. In order that Satan not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul actually saw abstinence in marriage as potentially dangerous for both husband and wife. All you need to do is sit in my chair for a while and hear the stories. And you'll know exactly what Paul's talking about. So here's an observation. This is why they need to stop defrauding each other. This is why they have to stop depriving each other. Because Satan can exploit the negligence and deprivation. It's only when these conditions are met should there be any abstinence, and that only for a time, and keeping in mind the tactics of Satan. Now, you have to understand that at this point, Paul is simply making a concession, which he's going to say in verse 6, but I don't want to pass over this too quickly. You have to understand that God, in, in, in the confines of marriage, 
has actually blessed the marriage union in such a way that husbands and wives also help each other fight against temptation. I know this is a tough subject. It's a very tough subject. A lot of times... A spouse does not realize how vital they are to their husband or wife's purity. They don't see that negligence in the bedroom sets up a spouse for temptation. And so Paul says, verse 6, but this I say by way of concession, not command. What is he saying by way of concession, not command? The concession is the possible time of abstinence. He said, I'm just saying that by way of concession. I'm not saying that you have to take times of abstinence for the purpose of prayer. I'm just saying that by way of concession. I'm not saying that by way of command. Because you could easily imagine back in Corinth after uh, the the letter is read, um, you know, the husband and wife are walking home after church and um, and one of the spouses, we'll just, we won't attribute blame to husband or wife. One of the spouses says, well, you heard what Paul said. I think that we should set aside a, a time of prayer for the next year. And the other spouse says, well, hold on a second. That was just by way of concession, not command. All right? So, verse 7. Thank the Lord, we're almost done. Yet, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So, verse 7, here's, here's Paul's wish. That all men were even as I am. Now, some people say, see, singleness is just better. Paul says, I wish that everybody was just like me. Well, that's not exactly what Paul's saying Paul is not simply referring to his unmarried state. He is referring to his gift of celibacy. He's not just extolling being unmarried. He's actually saying there are certain benefits and advantages which he will unfold later in this very chapter to being an unmarried celibate person. And I, I wish that every, let me just, let me just tip my hand and, and just tell you, you know, you know what Paul is going to say later, right? In other words, Paul's saying, if, if, if everybody's like me, if everybody had the gift of celibacy, do you know how many undistracted workers for the kingdom we'd have? That's, that's the point. But he turns around and he says, but each has his own gift from God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, although I wish that, uh, you know, that, 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 that the church was just full of people like me that could just devote themselves. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I can go into any town, preach the gospel, get the tar beat out of me, and not have to worry about whether my wife's worried about me. 
I wish that everybody was like that, but that's not how it is. Why? Why is it not that way? Because people aren't spiritual enough? No, because God gives that gift to some and he gives other gifts to others. This is not a matter of being unmarried and celibate is now spiritually superior to being married. It is a matter of giftedness. You have to see that in the second part. Each has his own gift from God. And Paul can say, I have, I have the gift of celibacy. I have the gift of actually being uh, unmarried and perfectly content in this as I go about doing my master's business. And there are other people that don't have that gift. They have the gift of marriage. But each one has his own gift. And then he, then he says, one in this manner, another in that manner. In other words, although I wish everybody was like me, that's not the way God's made it. Well, for Paul, both celibacy and marriage are gifts from God. And although Paul has a personal preference, right? One state is not spiritually superior to the other. So what, what that means, by the way, is that there's no, there's no room in the kingdom of God for married people to look down on unmarried people or for unmarried people to look down on married people. It's just a matter of different gifting, that's all. There's not one status that is just superior, spiritually superior to the other. And so what this passage does is this passage rescues us from the vacillating opinions of the church throughout the centuries. See, Paul would have none of this idea that marriage is inferior to a life of celibacy, but nor would he have anything to do with the idea that marriage is superior to singleness. Again, it's a matter of gifting. And everybody here is actually gifted. You may not know what it is at this point. Well, if you're married, you know what it is. Okay. If you are unmarried but marriageable, you may not know what that gift is yet. All right? But Paul sees marriage. In this passage, Paul sees marriage as, as a relationship of mutual intimacy and love. He sees it actually as a sin to deprive one another. It amounts to fraud. You know, the Puritans always have had a bad rap on... Um, on being, well, Puritans. And I just want to say that most of what's been said about the Puritans is just patently untrue. Somebody sent me a funny thing on Valentine's Day about Puritan Valentine Day cards, and it was, it was funny. Uh, it made me laugh. But it's completely uh, a mischaracterization. The Puritans actually taught on this subject regularly and extolled not only marriage and the institution of marriage, but they also extolled due benevolence. In fact, Leland Riken in his book, Worldly Saints, says, when a New England Puritan wife complained first to her pastor and then 
to the congregation, think about this, that her husband was neglecting their sex life, the church proceeded to excommunicate the man. I hope this doesn't start extra work for us. You know what Paul's point is here? It's the call to remain fully married. That's the call. If you're married, be fully married. In other words, if you're married, enjoy the benefits that God has blessed marriage with. Every time we have a wedding, and Ariel and I fill out a, uh, uh, a card for the, the couple's wedding, I always put Ecclesiastes 9.9. Solomon says, enjoy life with the woman God has given you all the days of your vaporous, fleeting Life. God calls us to actually enjoy marriage and enjoy it to the full. God does not say, well, look at that. They exchange vows, exchange rings, a life of misery now. We know all the jokes. You know why there are jokes? Because there are sad, pathetic marriages. Christians should be remarkable exceptions and should be happily, joyfully married as they learn to conjugate their verbs together. Some of you are so slow. Now... What about, (laughs) go look up the word conjugate and you'll get it. Um, So what about the unmarried? And Paul's going to have plenty to say to the unmarried for sure. But to those of you who are unsure about whether you have the gift, Paul's gift, put it that way. If you're unsure, don't rush to judgment as to whether you have it or not. Back in the 1950s, there were two Wheaton students that both were convinced that God had given each of them the gift of celibacy, and they were going to spend their life actually serving the Lord as single missionaries. We know the one, his name was Jim Elliott. We know the other, her name was Elizabeth Elliott. Both of them were convinced that they had the gift of celibacy until they met each other. And God showed otherwise. Elizabeth, by the way, would end up losing three husbands. Married, I believe, four times. Widowed each of those times. So you never know. You never know. And some who are so absolutely bent on being married, maybe that's not what God's called you to. Just maybe. You have to be open. You have to be open to what God has for you. And so, 
Some of you know the gift God has given you, and some of you have embraced it for his glory. But here's how we're going to close. Whether you're married or not, Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you that you talk about things in the Bible that we don't really like to talk about. And you force us to think about things that we may not like to think about. But Father, your word is, is wisdom. Your word is goodness. It's righteousness. It's truth. And so, Father, we pray that tonight you would help us to take these things that we've learned and to make the necessary applications so that we can have marriages that are pleasing to you. And Father, we pray that we would have a, a biblical mindset on intimacy within marriage. And we pray that we would live our marriages fully to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.